Today we have Chihiro Kurakawa on the show. Are you looking for a new career? Or do you want to jumpstart your retirement funds? Chihiro was stuck in his old job as a claims adjuster for 10 years and then as a financial analyst. He felt trapped and unfulfilled, but he made the decision to make a change and it paid off. Now he's living his dream life as an investor, working with people just like you who are ready to take their lives into their own hands. The truth is that there are no shortcuts when it comes to success in real estate investing. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes patience. It takes sacrifices. But if you're willing to work hard now so that you can live your best life later, then this might be right up your alley. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Chihiro before we start the show. Chihiro lives in the DFW area with his wife. He's completed three syndicated apartment deals for over 500 units. Like many, he worked a W-2 job for many years and wanted another way. Through sacrifice and perseverance, Chihiro found his way to success. He's a hardworking guy, and I'm happy to say he's one of my partners on the last multifamily deal I was involved in. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Chihiro Kurakawa. Chihiro, I appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, Darren. Thank you so much, man. Uh, it's great to reconnect with you, and uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be on your podcast with you. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how I know Chihiro. So um, first time I, I came in contact with Chihiro, I actually went to a, a free meetup group. Um, it was being held at Mark Kenny and, and Tamil's house. And um, the speaker for that day was Chihiro. And he was talking about his first syndication deal. And um, so that was the first time I got to hear his story and and after that, um, you know, he's he's very active on social media and he's at all the multifamily conferences and we run into each other and we know the same crowd. And then um, recently, uh, you know, a mutual friend of ours, David Legat, who I had on the on the show episode 16, he was partnering on a deal with David and, and they asked me to jump on and, and um, it's a great opportunity in West Texas and uh, looking forward to it. And he is the lead on that deal. So 
Very excited to learn more about what's going on with Chihiro. Um, hey, first question I typically ask is how many properties and how many units are you invested in? Yeah, uh, thank you, Darren. So I've done uh, three apartment deals so far, uh, and they actually come to a clean, uh, even 500 units across those three. Is that right? Uh, That's yeah. very rare. Exactly. Have that, have that happen. <laughs> so the first one, uh, 128 units in uh, Abilene, Texas. Then uh, did a second deal, which was a distressed uh, 248-unit property in Dallas, uh, over by Love Field, if you're familiar with the Dallas-Fort Worth Metro. And then the deal that uh, was fortunate to partner with Darren on uh, was the third, which is 124 units in uh, West Texas in a town called Big Spring, Texas. Fantastic. So my understanding is that you moved, I want to say you were in California. That's right. And you, Good you moved to Frisco, well, the Frisco area, because with Toyota. That's right. Um, so can you share with the listeners you know, what was your role with Toyota? What prompted the move? Did you have apprehension of moving from California to Texas? Uh-huh. Um, you know, talk, just talk about that a little bit. Well, if you don't mind, let me back up a little bit even before sure. that, which is, um, so I graduated from college in uh, 2003. Sorry, it took me a second there. Um, and 2003, uh, so yeah. how old are you, my friend? So I'm 41. 41. Yeah. So I'm 51. So I got 10 years. All right. All, all right. right. <laughs> all right. Uh, but at that point, you know, I look back and I just really didn't have a lot of strategy or vision. And so I just kind of was a leaf blown in the wind and took a job as a claims adjuster and did that for like a decade. And had I had some vision at that tender age of 23, I would have thought to myself, all right, what are the, kind of the prospects of this? And my really what ended up happening was I was kind of pigeonholed in probably my first month there as a claims adjuster. Somebody said, you know what they say? Once a claims adjuster, always a claims adjuster. And, and that no, should have been really? a big, big red flag. Right. But uh, I was like, I was a kid, didn't really have direction. And so um, I was like, oh, whatever the heck with it. Well, fast forward 10 years, I feel trapped. Um, I have this very niche uh, job experience that is not translatable really to any other uh, industry. And so I came to a point where um, I, I knew I had to make a drastic change. And that was the impetus for me in 2012 then to uh, go to business school. And I was a little old at that point. So I would have been 32 when I started business school. Typically people are in the mid to late 20s. Um, but you know what, Darren, I had limiting beliefs, right? I was like, business schools don't want claims adjusters. Like I'm just stuck here. This is what it is. Well, it's not true. <laughs> so, um, I, I did the work I needed to do to go to a decent business school. I did that. And then where where'd you go? I went to UCLA for, for grad school. Yep. So, uh, born and raised California and, uh, I graduate from business school in 2015. And that's when I started, um, working in analytics at Toyota. And as you know, uh, Toyota, uh, very famously moved its uh, corporate headquarters from Los Angeles to the Dallas area in Plano specifically. So I came to North Dallas as a part of that and moved here in 2016. And I was working in analytics and enjoyed that, but um, eventually realized that some of the trappings or challenges that come with working in a corporate job 
whether as a claims adjuster or in analytics, some of those frustrations are going to be the same. And so I felt, gosh, this isn't, it's great that I'm making more money than I was as You're a claims adjuster. You're making more money, right? <laughs> but you know, there was a bit of that golden handcuffs kind of a feel to it. So sure. then fast forward to 2017, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do to secure the financial future of my family? How are we going to afford sending a child to college? Um, how are we going to afford our retirement? Those types of questions came to mind. And I didn't see a clear path to that by just staying in the corporate environment. So then I started going to meetups and meeting people like you, you know, and I, I thought to myself, well, hey, if this lady, if this guy can do multifamily syndication, why can't I? And um, th that journey started in uh, 2017. Fantastic. So you ended up joining a, a, a mentorship group. I did. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of, you know, mentors, you know, if there's anybody young that's listening to this, you know, in college or just out of college, you know, try to find mentors because I, I feel the same way as you that, look, I went to college and it's like, well, I knew I wanted to do business, but I didn't really know what, you know, I was like accounting or finance. I did accounting and then, you know, I got a job at Pricewaterhouse and, you know, great name, great, you know, foundation. But much you're not an PepsiCo. accountant, Darren. <laughs> no, but it, like I didn't enjoy the work, of course you know, you like, yeah, I know you, you know, yeah. and, and so like that was, you know, but I think so many people, like, like you said, that you just kind of get pushed in a direction, yeah. you get a job, you start, you know, you know that job and you start climbing the corporate ladder and, and then you, you feel trapped and that's yeah. a terrible place to be. You know, terrible place Absolutely. to be. So and, and because of that, Darren, you talk about mentorship. So one of my big things now is I mentor people who are undergraduates or recent graduates from you, college. Oh, you, you do? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So how do you how do you do that? In what capacity? Well, um, I do that through UCLA um, and uh, they have like a mentorship program. And so I volunteer for that every year. Uh, pick up one or two students and I, and I keep in touch with them, you know, uh, teach them the stuff that I didn't know when I was 19, 21, 23 years old. And so that's been super valuable and really gratifying for me, uh, just to be able to give back in a small way to, um, a few people here and there, like, Hey, this is what I wish I would have known. So I'm telling you this right now. And I can see that it's adding value to these, uh, young people who are just getting started in their professional lives. So uh, that's been really cool. I'm, get, I'm getting chills because that's, that's fantastic because look, they're still going to make the decision on what they choose, what path they choose to go. But if somebody that is older and wiser and has knowledge, like can, can just present different ideas and different possible paths. And just even the simple thing of, Hey, do you realize when you graduate what your job will entail? Right. Yeah. Like there's so many people that are going to work, going to college for four years for a certain, you know, major, and they don't even know what the job is going to be like when that they was get me. out. You know? <laughs> that was me. That yeah. is crazy, you know? But like having a conversation with somebody that can tell you then, so that same thing happens, you know, for, look, we're, we're older. I'm 51. You're 41. I got involved in real estate like four years ago. You got in real estate around the same time, right? 2017. Yeah. Um, and 
we both joined mentorship groups. Yep. We paid money to be a part of a group. And what that did was it provided us with some guidance on how mm-hmm. to do it and, and also surrounded us with people that have already done it. Exactly. I was just going to say that, but you took the words out of my mouth. Like that is so incredibly powerful and motivating to be around people who are like you in one way or, or another, or maybe in multiple ways, they're similar to you. And you're like, wait, if she did it, like, why can't I do it? If Darren said, that, it, why can't I do it? I love that. Like, hey, if they did it, why can't I do it? Like, look, I met a bunch of smart people, but I'm like, they're just people. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, they're just people that took action and learned, yeah. you know? Um, so if, if they could do it, why can't I do it? That's, that's awesome. So um, I, I applaud you for giving back. That's, that's huge. Um, so, all right, you're, you end up, are you full-time real estate now? I am. So I left the uh, job at Toyota in March of this year. So about, okay. uh, it's October now, right? So it's about seven months ago. Awesome. Are you having withdrawals? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just not looking in the rearview mirror at all. Um, <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Hey, so um, you, you did, you've done three deals. Um, the first one was in a, in a tertiary market, mm-hmm. not in, in um, second one was a distressed deal. And the third one's a distressed deal. Yep. So did that just kind of happen or do you, are, is that your focus, um, both tertiary and distress? So I love that question. I get asked it a lot. And here's the answers. I'm an opportunist first and foremost. I'm not a distressed guy. I'm not even a multifamily guy, let's be honest. But I'm looking for opportunity as an investor because my number one obsession is I cannot lose a dime of my investor's money. So I need to find the right opportunities and I need to assess the risk versus the reward of any given investment because I carry the responsibility of millions of dollars of other people's retirements, their children's wealth, their children's college educations, whatever that money is earmarked for, I have a responsibility for that now, right? So so in that context, when it came to that second deal, the, so the first one in Abilene was really your middle of the fairway value add deal. Had some significant deferred maintenance, but all in all, your standard class C uh, value add deal. Second one, distressed. It was uh, under 70% occupancy when we took that thing over in September of 2019. In here in Dallas, and so yeah, I mean, under seventy percent in Dallas is yeah, not, is not a good sign, right? I pretty mean, rare, exactly yeah. in this market, right? So, why I went into distress is because I kept seeing and continue to see cap rate compression, right? And so we continue to see people who maybe don't make the best operational decisions, maybe didn't go into. A, B, or C deal properly capitalized, but they're getting bailed out by the, by the market. Well, that to me is too much risk. I don't want to count on the market to bail me out because uh, cap rates will stop compressing at some point, right? The Fed's going to raise rates. We know this. So in, with that understanding, well, then the question I ask is, okay, well, how am I going to mitigate risk? And as hard as it is, uh, as, hard as hard as it is operationally to to right the ship of a distressed asset, I view that as the best way to ensure 
the safety of my investor's capital. So then if that's the asset I'm going to go after, well, then I need to build a team that is properly equipped to take down a distressed asset and fix it as quickly as possible, right? And so that's where partnering with people like uh, our friend David Legat um, comes into play where, you know, he's, he's a tremendous partner because he has in-house property management, in-house construction management. So those are the things that I look like, uh, look at that will, it will serve him because he's in, I bring him a deal, you know, it serves me because he has the capabilities to uh, help me asset manage. And so it's a very powerful kind of symbiotic relationship that I can have with a person like David. So the distress, going after distress right now at this point in the cycle is exactly that. It's something that I'm doing at this point in the cycle because I want to mitigate risk. Uh, the cycle will turn. And at that point, um, hopefully I will have uh, plenty of dry powder um, to make some moves and, and acquire assets. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you said something so smart there and you did something so smart that look, when you, when you went to, after the distress deal, you didn't go and partner with somebody that had no experience. You partnered with somebody that had experience with distressed assets prior yeah, and a proven track record of turning that around. Um, you know, look, there's um, ego can get in the way at times. And some people yeah. may go after a deal and, Hey, I'm going to like, I'm going to do this and figure it out, but they may, lose a lot of money or not maximize the valuation because they don't have the learning lessons of somebody that has experience. So yeah. um, I applaud you that you, you went searching for a partner that, you know, kind of was already been there, done that. Yeah. Um, I, I never thought about it in that way, Darren, but, uh, but yeah, I think you're right. Um, you got to have some humility. Um, I'm not, uh, Hey, I've done a whopping three deals. That's, uh, that's not a whole lot, honestly. And so um, I definitely realize the value of partnering with great people. Um, and uh, I wouldn't do it any other way, really, until I, I feel like I've uh, established enough credibility on my own. Well, I, w I wouldn't, um, don't put yourself, you know, where three deals is, is strong. I mean, it's not like you, you bought three duplexes, you know, I mean, <laughs> I suppose, this, yeah. you know, fi 500 units, like, look, I have some people come on and they're like, Oh, I only, I only did, did one deal a year for the last 10 years. I'm like, look, there's so many people that have never done one deal, yeah. you know, like don't beat yourself up for that. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up is that I love that you said, you know, that you have an obsession and responsibility um, to, to investors um, you know, and, and the capital raise is in a syndication typically is like the one thing that people are really scared about. Like, oh, I'm going to bring in other people's money. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also want to add something to that is that it's actually extremely exciting that you're not just helping grow the wealth for you and David and, you know, in this deal, I'm, I'm in with you. Um, but all the limited partners, right? They have busy lives, okay? They're doctors and lawyers and, you know, in corporate America and they've saved up their hard-earned money and they've invested in, in different deals. And then 
when there is a payday on the back end and there's a, a, a sizable return, they all have different needs for it. Some of them, yeah. you know, retirement. Some of it is buy a new car. Some of it is, you know, college education, whatever. But I look at syndication as being a way to give back yeah. because there's so many people that, they, you know, they just don't have the time or knowledge or effort or passion to go after and find their own deal. But if they can partner with somebody like you that can take their money and then use that money to increase valuation and then provide them with a very strong return, yeah. like that is a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I had, I had done that years ago. I wish I knew somebody years ago. Um, and so the other that, element awesome. of that too, Darren, is uh, we're taking a property that's run down that is frankly kind of an embarrassment to the community, right? We're putting a ton of capital into it and changing something from an eyesore into something into an apartment uh, community that people are not embarrassed to live at. They're, they're going to be proud to live there. You know, it's going to have all the issues that the prior owner failed to address. They're all going to be fixed. And, um, and that is adding tremendous value to the community, uh, it's providing housing uh, to people that that need it, and um, and one thing that I think a lot of people need to realize is is you and I as real estate owners or landlords, if you want to call us that, we're, we're providing a commodity product, right? So like I can't charge if I own an apartment right next door from you, Darren, uh, I can't charge more than you. Um, cause I'm just not going to get occupancy, right? It's a commodity product. I'm a price taker just as you are and you're charging market rate and I'm charging market rate. So what we're doing when we take a rundown property and we generate profits to our investors, well, we're just taking, uh, an underused, uh, unrenovated, you know, poorly maintained product, making that, uh, better so that people are willing to pay more, right? Like, so it's not, in a sense, like uh, we're just giving people a better product that they're willing to pay more money for. And so I, I kind of, it kind of rubs me the wrong way when, when people say, oh, you're just like kind of not taking advantage of, but, but, but the rent is too high, right? Is kind of like a, maybe a general thing that you might hear from people. But what, if the rent's too high, the first thing that I think of is, well, that market in which the rent's too high, there's not enough supply. That's why the rent's too high. Everybody's, right. no landlord is able to charge more than the market is willing to bear. There's right. just not enough supply and that's why the rent's too high. So anyhow, uh, I think. That's a good point. And, you know, for the reality is when, when you do, whether it's a BC value add deal um, and you're, you know, painting the property and upgrading the interiors or whether it's a distress deal eyesore and you're, you're completely, you know, re revamping that property um, to be an attractive property for the community. There's going to, there's no doubt there's going to be two different camps of tenants. There's going to be some tenants that they know that they were, they've been paying very, very, very low rate rental rates because they live in a dilapidated community. Mm -hmm. And so that type of tenant most likely will move and try to find another dilapidated, low, really, really, really low rent um, unit. And then there's other tenants 
that are like, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for providing a, a community that I could be proud of. I, you know, when I walk down through the parking lot and somebody stops me and says, thank you, this place looks so much better. I've lived here for like 15 years and like nobody's ever painted it before and it looks great. And I, I, I'm so happy like that is a side benefit. Look, I'm more of a business guy. Like I know syndicators that they are warm and fuzzy (laughs) about, you know, really giving back to the community. And I, and I love that benefit, but my mind works more in the, the returns and, and helping grow the wealth of people and getting involved. But when all of a sudden someone stops you out of the blue, you're like, holy cow, you know, like that's a true benefit. They, mm-hmm. The people that live here actually are proud of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, that is what you do when you um, turn a distressed asset around, you know? And so that, that point isn't lost on me in terms of the value that we're providing to the residents. Um, yeah. Hey, so another thing that I'm impressed about you with um, and you know, I would like you to share with, with listeners is, all right, if you go after a tertiary market like Abilene, um, or you go after a distressed deal, or you go out to West Texas, which is very, uh, dominated by the oil and gas markets. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the real estate. It's not you know, you actually have to understand that sub-market and the, you know, workings of that sub-market and the economics and the business drivers. 100%. And, you know, the, the, you know, the company, kind of companies and jobs that are available in that market. So talk a little bit about that, both from, okay, Abilene is, is a tertiary market. It's not in the Metroplex, DFW Metroplex. Um, and then let's talk about big spring, you know, sure. it's in an oil and gas market. Like I know when you, you know, uh, looked at this deal, you looked at oil and gas commodity pricing and, and where you think things are going in the future. So talk about those two components. Cause I think that's important. Yeah. Um, so Abilene and big spring, I'm going to separate because, uh, they are very different, v- very different. So Abilene is a, um, it's definitely a tertiary market from a national standpoint. Uh, the metro has about 170,000 people, if I remember correctly. But it's a diversified economy. Uh, big economic drivers there include the Air Force Base, um, which houses a bomber squadron. And then there's Abilene Christian University, Hardin-Simmons University. Um, so, uh, And then beyond that, it, it's just a, a very well diversified economy. And so those are the things you obviously need to um, look into in investing in any market, right? Um, But uh, an important dynamic about Abilene, which may generally apply to to many tertiary markets, is it's it's housing constraint. So, um, you know, you think building an apartment in Dallas is, is difficult, uh, bureaucratically and and just with all the challenges inherent in development, well, the economics uh, can be even more uh, challenging in a tertiary market, and so the economics often aren't there to build a A class or A plus class 
uh, property in a market like Abilene. So then what does that mean? That means there's going to be a lot of demand for uh, class C's being turned into B's, class B's being upgraded to a B plus. And so that's exactly what we did there. In terms of Big Spring, yeah, now we're talking about um, what you touched on there where the macroeconomic aspects are very, very important, particularly in West Texas. We're talking about that's the, the oil and gas patch, the oil patch uh, referred to as the Permian Basin. So the genesis of that was as soon as COVID hit, predictably oil demand just went through the floor, Right. And then in the summer, um, I believe it was June or July of 2020 last year, we briefly saw oil futures actually go negative. That so was crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I remember uh, around where you and I live, Darren, I saw gas get down to, it was in the 20, it was below 30 cents a gallon, briefly, maybe, maybe for a week or for a few days, but that's just unbelievable, right? So- you, just from a common sense standpoint, you know that's not sustainable, that, that oil demand has to come back. And then so that was really the impetus for it. But I really went into a lot of research and continue to do research because that's just kind of my personality. Um, <laughs> but I, I really read... Analytics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've read some books by a... a a Pulitzer Prize winning um, economist named Dan Daniel Jurgen, uh, who really specializes in oil and gas and geopolitics. Um, and, you know, I subscribe to newsletters, just do all the stuff that you would expect somebody to do if they're really researching some sort of commodity. And here's the bottom line. Yes, uh, decarbonizing, uh, reducing fossil fuel reliance, all of that stuff is very real. It's very... Um, it's very real. Having said that, petroleum and petroleum products are so fundamental to not just some of the things that we do, it's everything that we do. And the things that we consume are so dependent upon petroleum that our uh, reliance on that is going to diminish in a very slow way, much slower than you might think if you're if all you're doing is just doing super surface level research, just kind of consuming your news headlines, uh, those might Tesla is up again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that those kinds of headlines might just lead you to believe, oh, we're we're all going to be in electric cars in ten years. Well, the fact of the matter is that's simply not true. Tesla is a great example. So about three percent of all new cars sold today are electric in the United States. So. Uh, so, okay, that's a, that's a KPI or stat right there, but take a guess, Darren, what the average age of a car is in America today. Uh, 15 years old. Great guess. It's, it's actually about 12. 12. So I don't need to break out a calculator, uh, but I can just surmise that it's going to take a while for us to all be driving electric cars. If, if 3% right. of new cars, right. Uh, are, new, are electric and a car is driven on average for 12 months, uh, 12 years, 12 years in the right. U.S. So that is just one out of a sea of statistics and numbers that really bear out the fact that um, fossil fuels are, are going to be a key part of the world's economy for decades to come, not years to come. And so 
Uh, I'm going to briefly go as an aside here. So if, if we really want to decarbonize our world, I think a big, big part of the solution that's not being discussed is it goes well beyond uh, wind and, and geothermal and uh, solar. It's really going to come down to carbon capture and sequestration. We're going to have to figure out a way to take CO2 out of the air and turn it into chalk or rocks or what have you um, in order to meet uh, some of the goals that governments have today. Again, that doesn't aside, but my point is simply that for the next several years, if not at least the next decade, uh, perhaps well past that, uh, we need to produce a heck of a lot more oil and a lot of that is going to come from the Permian Basin. So with that as a backdrop, I started uh, really digging to try to find a property out there uh, that I know is going to be um, timed right in terms of the oil cycle coming out of COVID. And, um, and that's what we found in Barcelona Apartments in Big Spring. So you just said timed right. You know, I think that, so this one was, you know, West Texas oil, um, opportunistic, distressed. Um, but I think that that's a big theme with syndicators in general is that, look, there are a lot of investors, but they would probably be scared to pull the trigger. Yeah, sure. You know, and that's what differentiates the syndicator, the lead general partners that actually put their, you know, their reputation and their money on the line to lock up a deal and then go raise the capital um, versus, you know, limited partners that, um, or people that haven't invested in real estate that are just afraid to, to make that, you know, that call. So um, they're, you know, GPs make more money on a deal, but they have more risk and they have to, they have to actually take action when it's scary, you know? Yeah. When absolutely. you, when you got into this deal, I'm sure there's a lot of people that, what are you doing, man? You crazy? Like, you know, how many times do you hear, you hear that and you still have to pull the trigger, you know? Yeah, well, you're right. I did hear that a lot. But the flip side of that, on the other hand, Darren, I would say is, okay, well, I feel like it's crazy to pay, I don't know, 100000 a door for a stabilized C-class in Irving, Texas, uh, that's been picked over three times. It's traded... It's had three owners in the last seven years. That seems crazy to me. Like, where's the value add remaining? Like, what what are you going to do? You're going to add uh, Nest thermostats to a C-class apartment? Like, what are, what are you doing? Like, how do you add value at that point, right? So, um, so yeah, I'm certainly behaving in a contrarian manner. I, I absolutely agree with that. But um, I think that the depth of research that I did gives me confidence that uh, my investors and you and I made the right choice here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I went out there and I definitely saw a ton of opportunity. Um, but, you know, look, on the um, to be fair to the people that are paying these high prices, we there's no crystal ball, yeah. right? So. You know, inflation is a big discussion point now. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, even if you pay, you know, market prices, high prices, if you can lock in 
low cost of funds, you know, and then there is inflation. Well, then if there's wage inflation, people are making more money, then most likely they're able to afford to pay higher rents. So rents go up and your funding costs stay stay low. Even Even if you have a floater, it's, you know, half of, you know, of what your your rents are so your profitability should continue to increase mm-hmm. but that is you know if there's inflation and people are still willing to pay more rents and you look at it from a different perspective of you want you want more confidence than than just hoping that the market is going to take it that way yeah. um you 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 know you want to see something more concrete than that yeah. And I, and I appreciate you bringing up that point because I certainly don't want to um, rain on anybody's parade, right? Like uh, there's tremendous validity in what you just said. And that's why people are paying what they're paying in various metros throughout the Sun Belt, uh, including Dallas, right? So there's a lot of uh, value and truth to what you're saying. Um, and that's why everything from uh, single family homes up to institutional uh core properties, all of it's appreciating right now. Right. There's a reason all the money's coming here. Absolutely. So, um, look, if you are, you've been in, at this for four years, um, to kind of divide this up and, and, you know, if you are a first time passive investor, how do you get involved with this? You know what? Listening to Darren's podcast is a great way to start, <laughs> right? Um, podcasts uh, have been a, a tremendous part of my education. Um, I'll tell you what, Darren, for about the first three years of my real estate journey, I literally only listened to podcasts. I never listened to music. Is um, that right? Yeah. I was just uh, constantly listening to podcasts uh the thing is, man, this business is hard, right? It's super competitive. It's really hard to find assets. It's really hard to raise capital. It's really hard to asset manage, yada, yada, yada. It's all, all of it's hard. So you got to be freaking obsessed, you know? <laughs> and I was obsessed. So I still am. So um, my, I literally only listen to podcasts and just learned a tremendous amount from, uh, from podcasts like yours. And so that I think was uh, huge for me. I also started out as a limited partner um, well before I, I became a general partner. I think that that is, is a, a smart thing to do. I, I did that and, you know, part of it was I wanted higher return, you know, better returns. I pulled money in the stock market and put it into um, a lot of real estate deals. But it's a, it also helps you learn what, you know, when you go to raise money, what are you, what are you feeling? You know, like when you actually have to wire 50k or 75k or 100k into a deal you know what are you feeling that first time like because there are going to be new investors that are going to be talking to you and you you know having gone through that process and understanding all right now you're going to you the documents you have to sign the wiring then the monthly emails and all that you know having gone through it gives you comfort you know, and, and it gives, you know, the, a new investor comfort that you can talk them through that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's a, that's a good point to bring up like the perspective of a first time, um, LP in a, in a uh, private equity deal. 
the the anxiety they must feel right to wire that 50k like that takes courage man um yeah you know so absolutely courage you know it's courage you we, we always talk about the courage of the the general partner of having to lock up the deal but that it does it takes courage to one decide you're going to go out and get educated yeah by listening to podcasts reading books going online whatever um going to meetup groups but then you know actually doing it yeah you know yeah because this is um it's different from the traditional path that you are led to believe is the way to your retirement, right? Which is a 401k. Um, and so to kind of not necessarily swim against the current, but just do something that's a little bit different that does take some, some guts, you know? And, uh, here's a, here's an example, um, that kind of proves that point and also demonstrates my naiveness. But, uh, my first deal, um, I was marketing the, the capital raise to, uh, basically every business school classmate that I had, whose email address I had, you know, uh, cause I was very, very active in business school. So I, I knew a lot of people, I knew practically everybody in my, in my class. Um, and so, uh, so I reached out to these folks, um, and you would think people who have very recently had a, a pretty top notch, like finance education, invest, investing education would be like, oh yeah, this is a great idea. Um, but again, that was my naiveness. Uh, it, it is, it does take courage to step outside of your, the paradigm that you're familiar with, which is 401k for a lot of people. Um, and so I didn't get the kind of response that I uh, thought that I might get it's from, funny. It, right. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of these people, uh, you know, they, they, it's hard to have that faith on in somebody who's like, this guy was like the, uh, uh, you know, he was involved in, in business school and in, uh, student council and these events and yada, yada. Okay. I know him as that guy, but he was also right. a claims adjuster. And now he's, now he's raising private equity for real estate. Like, right do I trust this guy? And, and clearly the, uh, the market showed that, um, a lot of people were, were hesitant, but then that slowly changes as you show success. Um, as you, uh, build up your, your reputation as a person of integrity and as a person who performs. And so, um, you know, more and more of that, those, that community has been uh, engaged with me, uh, through these deals. I, I like a lot of what you said, um, and I had very similar experience. I remember the first syndication. I had certain people in my phone, and I was like, oh, this guy's no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Like, entrepreneur, like, wealthy, invested in a lot of different businesses. I'm like, this is going to be, you know, he's definitely going to invest. And then all of a sudden, he's like, you know what? I just put a bunch of capital into this other business. I, you know, the timing just isn't right. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that very well may have been the case, or some people just like to control their own businesses and don't want to be a passive, like, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and then there were others that I was like going through my phone and I'm like, oh, there's no way this guy is going to invest. And I'm like, all right, Darren, you can't make that decision for him. And I send a quick text and then, Hey, can we get together for coffee? I you know, I don't know how this thing works. Can you share? And then that guy is invested in several deals with me. Yeah. Like it's, 
you don't know. Exactly. You know, it's an opportunity and, you know, you have to share it. You have to be willing to share it with a lot of people and you will be surprised just like you were surprised and I was surprised. There's going to be some people that you think are no brainers that will not invest and there will be others that you think no way. And all of a sudden you're surprised. They've been squirreling away a bunch of money and this is right up their alley. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. That's so, that's so funny. So, um, talk about, um, getting uncomfortable because like, you know, doing your first deal, moving on to distract, like there's a lot of steps in this, this game of syndication that is uncomfortable. Yeah. So how, how do you kind of push through that? Um, man, that honestly goes beyond syndication. It, it's really a, a life philosophy for me at this point. Like the, has uh, it always been? No, no. Uh, so in that respect that I love that question, actually, Aaron, it hasn't always been. And becoming a real estate investor has changed my life uh, in, in more ways than one, clearly, because it has made me a person who is uh, willing to constantly face discomfort and, and constantly work towards getting onto the other side of discomfort. Um, so, uh, case in point, I started another, uh, real estate business, uh, this year. So I quit Toyota, as I mentioned in March, but I wanted to start a new business in real estate. So I did. And, uh, so I've got a wholesaling business doing single family homes. So that's, a business that complements uh, what I do as a real estate um, investor in the apartment space. And, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I also, uh, for example, I'm like training for a marathon. Like, guess what? That's super uncomfortable, like running long right. distances. But uh, Absolutely. But, you know, something about doing something that's been so difficult yet so rewarding um, has, uh, has changed um, many aspects of my life in a very, very positive way. Um, and in fact, uh, you can't see it, but I got a poster up in my office here that says, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it'll be worth it. And so, uh, that's kind of a, uh, a guiding principle for people like you and me, right? Because what we do can be very uncomfortable. There's a lot of aspects that are very, very challenging, very unpredictable, um, very anxiety inducing, you know, very scary, all of those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, success doesn't come easy. Uh, you have to work for it. That's fantastic. I love that poster that you have. Um, and you didn't say it, but you said it earlier, but you did say becoming a real estate investor has changed your life. And, And it has for me too, but it's when you see all the other people that, you know, not only did they get the first deal and the second deal, but they, they're uncomfortable. They're pushing themselves like to do, something they haven't done. And when you surround yourself with a group like that, it motivates you that again, if they can do it, I can do it. So not only can I get my first deal or my second deal, but you know, I can, Hey, you wanted to start another company. You want to train for a marathon. Look, your wife is a big athlete. So I would imagine that, that, you know, look, she, she trains hard. She's disciplined. And I'm sure that that has rubbed off on you oh, yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I give her credit for that all the time. Maybe not enough, but uh, I tell her <laughs> um, her relentlessness has definitely rubbed off on me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's huge. Um, because I don't know about you, but for me, although it's uncomfortable, you know, when I'm most excited and I'm charged up about something, it's usually something that I haven't done before that I'm learning and I'm, and I'm trying to push the boundaries. When you just are doing another, 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 that's just another one of those, like it, to me, life gets boring, you know? So, you know, when you're an, an adjuster, like, okay, you're going out and you're, you're adjusting mm-hmm. another, like, okay. Like I, it gets boring. There's a lot yeah. of people that live life that way. They're yeah. just doing Most the same thing over and over. And, yeah. Over way. and over again. And I think it's important to say there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But, um, but some people find that, uh, unfulfilling to the point that they're willing to do something drastic. And I, and I am one of those people. Um, I didn't always know I was one of those people, but, uh, you know, here sitting here in 2021, I, I can safely say that life wasn't enough for me. So I chose a different path. Which I think, I think is awesome. Now, when you make that choice, almost everybody that I've talked to that's successful, there were, challenges and sacrifices that they had to make in order to achieve those success factors. Yeah. So talk about some of the sacrifices you had to make. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So 2017, I mentioned uh, in the beginning was the beginning of my real estate journey. Uh, January, in fact, it wasn't a new year's resolution or anything, but it just happened to be the very beginning of that year. But I didn't close my first deal until over two years after that. So it was wow. March of 2019 that I bought my first deal. Um, and it was almost two years uh, since I had made that commitment to become a multifamily investor. It was almost two years before I got the first deal under contract. This is that Abilene deal. So um, so there's a sentence for you. It took me two years. But then let's unpack that. Like, well, what was that like? I mean, uh, the first year of that two year period, I was truly going it alone. Um, going to conferences, reading podcasts, all that stuff we've talked about here. I was doing it, but getting nowhere. The second year of that, I did join a mentorship and, and I got to give credit where it's due. Uh, Mark and Tamil Kenny, they have a group called Think Multifamily that was uh, very, very beneficial for me. And that's the mentorship group that I decided to join um, that was very fruitful for me. Um, But, uh, you know, I would say I was still working fairly hard at the, at trying to find myself an apartment to buy during that first year prior to joining the mentorship. But I just was spinning my wheels. Well, I doubled down once I joined that mentorship group and uh, it was about six months after joining that I, lo and behold, got that first deal under contract. So um, I doubled down. I I really ramped up the effort level higher than where it was before after already working at it for over a year and um, was surrounded by like-minded people, uh, was provided uh, access to um, the, the partners, the team members that you need in order to take a deal down. Right. Like uh, if you have no experience, how are you going to find a, uh, a syndication attorney? 
how are you going to find a transactional attorney? Where do you, where do you even go to find one? Like, how do you get referrals on that? That sort of stuff uh, is really right in front of your nose when you join a mentorship group, right? So those sorts of things and, and many other factors were very, very critical for me as, as surely they were for you uh, when you joined a mentorship group. So um, that acceleration was critical. And uh, so, so that was the second half of that two-year journey up until I uh, purchased that first property. So the, back to your question, the point is it was a tremendous amount of effort. Um, and it's, it can get really, really difficult to chase a goal that you don't know if you're ever going to hit it. So it's very different from running a marathon in the sense that I know exactly how far I need to run. But this is, but that first- And you know the day that you're running it. <laughs> and you know the day that you're running it. But that, that first two years, it's like I'm running a really long race and I have no idea how long it is. I don't know where the finish line is. That's what Chase and multifamily, your first multifamily deal is like. So um, I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, are, are going to kind of give up, right? There's going to be attrition because it, it's a very, very challenging path. The people that, that pull through that are going to get that first deal. So um, to answer your question, man, it's really freaking hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like your poster said, it's worth it in the end, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So the, the other thing, um, I, you know, we were in different mentorship groups. Um, I'm in the Brad Sumrock group, but you know, I love people and, and I've met so many great people in all kinds of different um, groups, but it, it also brings, you know, not only the, the partners, right. Um, and the know-how, um, but and the people and the success stories, but it brings credibility, right? Mm -hmm. So what do, what do I mean by that? Well, when you reach out to, you know, a syndication attorney or you reach out to a broker and you say you're part of this group, they, those brokers, those attorneys, those, you know, uh, vendors, they've worked with a lot of other people in that group. Yep. So they've seen success yeah. with that group and just aligning yourself with that name and that group brings you credibility where they may spend more time with you yes. than had you just called, you know, out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, uh, very important aspect of the value provided by mentorship groups. Yeah. Cause uh, credibility is, uh, in short supply when you have zero deals. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. I liken it to like, okay, you call the broker for the first time and the conversation is something like, Hey, can I go on this property tour? Like you've, you know, you've got this hundred unit. I'd like to go on a property tour. And then one of the first questions come back from the broker, like, you know, well, what do you, what do you own? Yeah. Well, you know, I own my house. And then, you know, right from that point that the broker is putting you at the back of the list. You're in his dead mind. in the water. Yeah. <laughs> You're dead in the water. You may think that like, he may be extremely cordial to you. He may even go on the property tour with you, but in his mind, he's like, this guy can't close. Like he's, you know, I'm, I, he's just a number that I can say I did one extra property tour, but <laughs> he's, he's not, he's not somebody that I'm going to be recommending. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. 
So, hey, um, there's a lot of people, you talked about building a team, you talked about um, all, you know, there's a lot of people that are involved in these transactions, you know, talk about the importance of going to conferences and meetup groups and networking with other people and Mm -hmm. and all of that. Well, uh, your listeners are probably hearing this practically every episode that you record, right? It's a relationship business. Why do we all keep saying that over and over and over? Because it's, it's true. It's fact. Um, every aspect of real estate, I was just, guess what? I was at a conference shaking hands, you know, meeting people just last night. And I was having this very conversation about, uh, every aspect of real estate, not just being a principal buying assets, but if you're a broker, if you work in title, uh, if you are an LP, all of these things require you to network and uh, build relationships with people, right? So real estate is a, is a very, very, um, it, it's just so fundamental uh, to this business to be relationship oriented. So uh, that is why, you know, I went to a conference last night. I went to another one uh, two weeks ago. And then I I went to the old Capitol Conference uh, three weeks ago. Like, you know, I'm constantly going to these things um, because you just never know who your next partner is going to be, who your next uh, contractor is going to be, who your next title company, and on and on. Uh, You can only find those people by... uh, by hunting, I guess. And the way that you hunt in this business is, is you shake hands, you meet people. Uh, meet people. Yeah. Look, I mean, David Legat was not part of the Think Multifamily group, yeah. but you met him somewhere along the way yeah, and perfect, you know, uh, de- example. developed a relationship and, and you've done two deals with them. I'll tell you the story um, of how I met David is. Okay, was, go for it. It was at a networking event hosted by um, Madison, which uh, does uh, cost seg. Uh, it's the vendor that I use for cost seg and they throw a a party every year. So I was there and I met David there and I did not know David from. That's funny because that's where I met David too. Was that, was that the Madison, one of the Madison parties as well. Okay. And we played golf a number of times, but, um, yeah, that's, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, fast forward and we've done two deals together, you know? So, uh, that is why I go to these events. And, you know, it builds credibility too. Like, look, yesterday I was, I had a coffee meeting with somebody that reached out to me over social media um, and I'm meeting with him. And when I was, before I met with him, I just cut, went through his Facebook and looked at, you know, different pictures. And sure enough, there was a picture with you and <laughs> and so and somebody else that that I know from social media I haven't met yet, um, but at the old Capitol Conference. That's funny. And- yeah, and then I saw him pictured with some other people I know, and I had never met this guy. But immediately it brought, you know, a, hey, this guy must be in the space if he's, you know, hanging out with and he's at these conferences and he's pictured with people I know yeah. and that sort of thing. So, it, you know, sometimes I meet with people and, you know, they have no connection to multifamily and they're just really, really, really green. And this guy had done a couple of deals and, um, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how just that picture, you know, I'm like, oh man, he's with Chihiro. Like they must know each other. They, you know, so it's important to get out there. It is vitally important. Yeah. Love that story, Darren. 
Hey, so uh, what's the next big stretch goal for you, my friend? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very fortunate. Other than running a marathon, I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> <laughs> pretty huge. Um, I'm very fortunate that I was able to leave the corporate job, right? Like that was a big uh, goal of mine that I'm uh, proud of achieving. Um, but I got into this for, for financial freedom. Well, it's actually kind of bigger than that. It's really freedom, right? And we talked about this before we started recording, but like money is, it's a tool, you know, money is not the end, it's the means by which you can achieve things. Um, and, and so, so that's really important to me in the sense that, like, I'm not in this for money. I'm in this in order to use, uh, I guess, to generate enough money such that I can achieve a level of control over my life um, and allow my wife to achieve a level of control over her life so that we can do whatever we want whenever we want. And so um, money in and of itself doesn't do that. And so you can fall into to the consumption trap of just like buying stuff that doesn't right. free you from anything. Um, and, and, and that's fine too. Con- consumption is absolutely perfectly fine. But uh, uh, for me, the goal is, you know, just to be able to control uh, me and my wife's lives to the extent that we would like to. So to that end, um, you know, I, it, it's a big milestone to have left my corporate job, uh, but I still have work to do, you know? So uh, in terms of what's next for me, I, I got to keep searching, you know, I got to keep looking for uh, new assets. As you know, right now at this point in the cycle, finding well-priced assets is seemingly impossible, but (laughs) somehow occasionally it's happening. Like, you know, you and I found one, right? So, um, that's what I got to keep doing, being disciplined, uh, being diligent, um, continuing, continuing to build relationships and, uh, just got to plug away. This is not, um, something that happens quickly, right? Like, uh, you build wealth through compounding and compounding by definition, it takes, takes time. So I'm playing the long game. So uh, outside of work, what do you like to do? Well, um, right now, most of my time is spent running. Training? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I just ran 19. Share with the listeners your, what, your, what your wife is involved with. Because she's, yes. she's a big time athlete yeah. too. So yeah, wanna... thank you for asking that. Uh, so my wife is an Ironman triathlete. And Ironman, for those who don't know, is 140.6 miles. It's insane. <laughs> um, it's a 2.4 mile swim followed by a hundred something mile uh, bike and then a mar- full marathon. And so uh, she's done that in as little as 11 hours and I think six minutes or 11, seven, something like that. Um, and she did well enough uh, this year at an Ironman qualifier that she actually qualified for the Ironman world championships. So wow, um, I'm very proud of her for achieving that. It's been a long time coming. She's been training for uh, seven, maybe even eight years now at this point. Um, and amazing, and very proud of her for achieving that. Uh, it's you know a lot of people have completing an Ironman as a bucket list, you know, but right, making it right. to Kona, the World Championships, is you got to be the best of those people, right? So, um, so yeah, that's what she does, and. Uh, um, and so to our earlier point, you know, her 
dogged determination, um, her level of effort is very inspiring for me. And uh, I, I freely admit to anybody that that has been a, a big inspiration for me to keep working hard at what I do. That's huge. That's awesome. Um, hey, if listeners want to reach out to you and get to know you better, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, my website is uh, blackriverep.com. That's Black River E is in equity, P is in partners.com. And I'm on social media. Uh, you can get me on Instagram at CG Kurokawa, C-G-K-U-R-O-K-A-W-A. And I can certainly be found on Facebook as well. Fantastic. Well, Chihiro, uh, one, appreciate uh, partnering with you. You're a top-notch guy. I appreciate you taking the time to share with listeners. Um, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. And until next week, sign off. Thank you very much, Darren. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.